the big challenge has always been that research shows that showing people research really doesn't work. Modelers like me have been building mathematical models saying, if we don't change, we're in trouble. If we don't change, we're in trouble forever. But we're not changing enough. It's Maria from Cooler Earth, and this is Now What? A special season of our podcast where I'll be talking to experts from all walks of life who are doing the work and being very intentional about how they find new and engaging ways to communicate the challenges we currently face and just as importantly, the opportunities, ways forward and reasons for hope. This week on the podcast, I'm talking with Andrew Jones. Andrew is an expert on international climate and energy issues. He's a system dynamics modeler, keynote speaker, and designer of simulation-based learning environments. He's the co-founder and co-director of Climate Interactive, an organization with a mission to provide better ways for people to understand the complex and interconnected issues of climate change through experiential learning. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Happy to be here. Can you maybe start by telling me a little bit about your background and your career? Yeah. Well, my name is Andrew Jones, and I am the co-founder and co-director of Climate Interactive. We're a nonprofit think tank that builds simulation models on climate change strategy and embeds them in a wide range of learning experiences from games to workshops to graphics in the media to reports, and uh, we're really built on a long tradition of modeling, system dynamics modeling, it's called, out of MIT Sloan that goes back, well, 50 years now. And uh, our mission is to turn our 13 people's work into powerful results out in the world uh, so that we have a sustainable world and a healthy climate. And what led you to start Climate Interactive? The driver was really seeing that simulation models, mathematical models could Mm -hmm. make a big difference in the world, but they were not largely. We could think back. uh, The big challenge has always been that research shows that showing people research doesn't work. (laughs) Right. And I'll say it again more slowly. It, It sounds odd, but research shows that showing people research really doesn't work. Modelers like me have been building mathematical models saying, if we don't change, we're in trouble. If we don't change, we're in trouble forever. But we're not changing enough. So there's a program out of the Sloan School of Management at MIT that teaches how to embed models in learning experiences where people are actually open to changing their minds about things. And when you think of it that way, you, you handle your interaction with other people and with the sharing of information in a very different way. And our nonprofit was founded by Beth Sawin and me in order to engage very differently with people so that they really do change their minds. And we've done studies and we find it actually works. People do change their minds based on the experiences they have with our models. Can you expand on what those tools are and how exactly you use them in order to create these experiential learning opportunities? Yeah, the most popular one is called World Climate, and it is a simulated United Nations negotiation. Mm-hmm. The leader, like I could I step up there and say I'm Antonio Guterres, and I tell people 
that they're representing the world. And some people I say, sit on the floor. You're the poorest countries. I give a box of donuts to the richest countries. And in the middle sit Brazil and China and India and South Africa and Mexico, Indonesia, the fast growing nations of the world. And I say, all right, you've got an hour to solve climate change. And they negotiate and they come up with proposals and bids and deals and uh, get very animated and engaged. And we, I've run this with second and third graders. Many high schools have run it. It's been run by 50,000 people around the world. And they very quickly learn the basics of climate science and international climate justice issues and economics by living it for an hour. Right. And we find that 83% of the people who play this game emerge more likely to take action on climate change. So it's a way to live this challenge and therefore actually be in a mode where people will change their mind and think differently about it. We've built other games that immerse people in, in these challenges as well. That's really fascinating. I ex I especially appreciate the value and priority you place on people at the center of learning rather than simply as receivers of information. You learn by doing. That is something we know about the human brain and something you are using to create these tools. But when you say people come out of these simulations more likely to take action on climate change, what does that mean exactly on an individual level? Yeah, good question. We we really emphasize the need for collective action. Mm -hmm. People do not emerge asking about recycling and changing light bulbs. Right. It, it's very clear at this point that what's needed is a civil society movement to scale. And that is collective coordinated action uh, at every level, you know, communities and cities and states and countries, and then between countries as well. So we find that people emerge more committed to thinking about how they can contribute to a much bigger movement in society. Right. And that's exactly what we need moving forward. I also have been thinking about the ways in which there's a need to sort of meet people where they are in terms of their knowledge and awareness of the issues surrounding climate change, whether that is someone who is informed on the science already but not too much on the collective action solutions, or whether it's someone that really doesn't know much about the impacts of greenhouse gases on our atmosphere and ecological systems. How has this tailoring of messaging played into your thinking and the work you do? Yeah, what a good question. It, you've got to meet people where they are. Mm -hmm. um, so one conclusion of that is when talking about these issues, it rarely works to plan out a speech and a PowerPoint deck and say it and then say any questions at the end. <laughs> so because of that, uh, many of the experiences we design are not games. I mentioned the game version, but more of an interactive workshop, which is really a facilitated, grounded conversation. Mm -hmm. We do a lot of this with businesses, corporations. I've been doing it with some large international banks, some oil companies, where we take a simulator that can play out the future of, well, what if we have a carbon price or renewable energy action or carbon dioxide removal or slower population growth or less coal or more renewables? So we, we have a simulator that can test all of those actions and the impact on temperature and put it in front of people and say to them, so what what do you think we should do? 
and what kind of impact would it have? And from that conversation emerges where people are stuck. Sometimes they're stuck about, are there actually things that can be done? Sometimes they're stuck about, well, the impacts are on the other side of the world. Why should I care about it? Or they're stuck way back at, wait, I don't even understand why humans cause climate change. Or they're stuck on, I think about this so much that I'm frozen. I can't even think about it anymore because I'll start crying. People are in so many places. So we need to customize conversations with people to where they are to meet the questions that are on their minds and do it on their terms. And on their terms usually means in conversation with their peers. People will change their mind when they're talking with other people whom they trust. So we set up a conversation between people grounded in the best science so that you don't just have people saying, oh yeah, we'd be fine if we just tell Brazil to stop deforestation, that'll get us down to two degrees. That's not correct. And two people could agree that that's true. We come in with our simulators to make sure it's grounded in the best available science, energy economics, and so on. Something that has come up in this podcast a lot is also the question of equity. So who has the access to the information, the research, and the resources really to be informed on these issues? In this case, it would not just be meeting people where they are, but actually seeking out the people who are not even in those rooms or conversations to begin with. Is this something you guys have thought about at all? What a good question. Um, The most encouraging thing I've seen is by a professor at University of Massachusetts at Lowell named Juliet Rooney Varga, who has adapted world climate and taken it to some high schools to particularly serve uh, kids who are of a generation of the first to consider going to college. And so he's brought this tool, you know, climate, who talks about climate science in a lot of these populations, it just doesn't happen that much. But with the game, it's been particularly engaging because they just love the power dynamics and the role playing. I've got some great videos of some of these students really getting into playing the roles of Donald Trump and Xi Jinping and Narendra Modi and Angela Merkel as world leaders. Um, So that's been a program that's been very encouraging because we find that people do care about these things. And when we actively change the experience to work particularly well with kids of that culture and that mindset and that age, uh, it really engages them and gets them thinking both about STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, but also international issues that they might not have access to in other ways. That's awesome, especially since, as you point out, introducing climate science then introduces a whole set of topics and debates that can spark other interests. You've mentioned an emphasis on early education as a way as a way in to connect with people and bring climate knowledge and awareness to students specifically. Is this the demographic you intentionally target? As an organization, we we make our tools available. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd say when we reach out, we're going more towards decision makers, but we have made sure that all our tools are ready for educators to take to young people. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to hear what you think have been some of the failures or challenges that have gone in the way of communicating the science of climate change and some of the things the scientific community has known as facts for a very long time now. Yeah. Well, 
this one relates to your last question about like equity. And, and that is um, we have ever overemphasized the long-term benefits of climate action. We've talked about it as if this is really going to pay off in 2070. Right. Well, the reality is that most of the things that we need to do, and it's largely about not burning coal, oil, and gas. Many of those things bring us benefits in the here and now, and particularly if we do it well to the most vulnerable people in our societies. Mm -hmm. If we don't burn coal, the air gets cleaner. And right now, air quality causes millions and millions of deaths around the world. When we do stop burning the coal and clean up the air, then respiratory disease goes down, health costs goes down. It's an amazing number when you add up all of the benefits. As well, you build community, you do better by water and jobs. So there are many short-term benefits that we need to capture because there are people who need help right now. If we took a hard look at the inequity of the world, we would prioritize some of these actions to help the most vulnerable among us. So that's one big thing is the amazing co-benefits. We call it multi-solving, addressing climate change, but also taking, making sure that we reap the abundant benefits in the near term and we multi-solve. So that's one of the biggest things we've missed in, in climate communications. Definitely. And I think that is increasingly becoming a bigger part of the conversation. But then ironically, when you begin to emphasize the co-benefits of solving for climate change, for example, the creation of jobs, cleaner air and water, then those are taken by the opposition of climate action and become talking points to somehow oppose taking such actions. I'm thinking specifically what's happened with the Green New Deal recently. How have you dealt with, if at all, with such opposition? We have had the optimism that if we keep hammering away at the abundant co-benefits, the, the truth will, will find its way through. So we, we haven't also had to be in the middle of a political game on this as much. So uh, we haven't faced it, but we keep at the framing that we will help people in the near term if we take these actions. What about addressing the question of costs and how to pay for the kind of action that we need? That's really relevant. And um, what we find with capturing the benefits from a lot of these actions, the challenge is that you spend money in one area and then you get the benefits in the other. You spend the money in energy efficiency and saving energy, and then the, the benefits go to your health sector. So there needs to be more creative ways of accounting to take advantage of those benefits and, and capture the costs. Right. And I'm also curious to talk about how you see the role of the media. I think the media has traditionally had some challenges with climate communication and at times climate science and reports get caught up in the news cycle and become catchy headlines that don't really go much into depth or sophisticated kind of conversations about the issues. What do you think can be done to change that? Yeah, the media has had a lot of trouble with this issue because it wants to just talk about the doom and gloom side of this. That's what gets headlines is fear. So media wants to talk about where there's reasons for fear. The challenge, though, is as somebody who's trying to spark action in the world is fear is not a particularly good motivator for creativity 
open-mindedness and new ideas. It's difficult to get there from fear. So we want to slow down the uh, fear reflex and get people to think more in a bigger sense and bigger picture. So we try to not emphasize those doom and gloom scenarios, but instead have people experience success to see what could it be like to create a world that actually does work. Um, and this is where we've found uh, at least some people in the media willing to play along with us. So instead of just showing a graph that shows where things are headed and we don't want them to ha be headed there, we have been developing mostly with the New York Times, some with others, interactive graphics that tell a story of where we could be headed, but help people experience a much better future. We did a feature with the New York Times called You Fix the Climate, where you chose different options for what countries around the world did and then saw what the results were. And it's kind of a choose-your-own-adventure op-ed. It was one of the first interactive op-eds in the New York Times. And it allowed people to experience a positive future of what it would take to actually stay within, in that case, a carbon budget. Uh, we think that's really critical is making things interactive where you're not just receiving the information, but you are participating actively in shaping a future that's better. And we hope that that action orientation will lead to action in the world. That was an extraordinary op-ed, I thought, especially because of how incredibly well designed it was. I think it's for me one of the most exciting things right now to see how creatives are getting involved in the climate movement, everything from graphic designers to photographers, which have been critical in getting powerful messages out there. How do you think about this in your work and go about fostering an interdisciplinary approach to what you do? Yeah, it's so critical right now. And we, we need the artists, we need the storytellers, so many different types of disciplines are, are necessary. And I think it's because um, we're very good as humans at dealing with situations where cause and effect are immediate in time and space. Mm -hmm. You know, if I feel like this ceiling over my head is falling, I'm going to be able to handle that situation really well. I'll just deal with it right away. But when I'm doing something that uh, producing carbon dioxide, which accumulates and then over time builds up and changes weather patterns. We don't have feedback about our actions. I don't get a sense that when I drive my car, something bad is happening. So we need people to help us experience the long-term delayed implications of our actions immediately. Like, And art does that. It brings images from the other side of the world right to our faces. These graphics like lines going around in a circle or dancing on a graph in different ways help us experience the long term 2050 2100 as if it is here and now we're finding ways that artists and other designers are doing an excellent job of making those long-term delayed or distant actions really present visceral and powerful when we have so much data, so much scientific knowledge today that supports climate action and can help us understand the impacts of a warmer planet, what do you think are some of the barriers we still face in translating that knowledge into actual political action on the crisis? Yeah, the, the challenges seem to be 
how to not trigger the fear, panic, despair, emotional reaction is, is one big challenge. We think about that a lot. How to bring it to be here and now and relevant to what, to the near term, how to have the data point us towards something that is actionable mm -hmm. and not just simple actions that are not to scale. So those three components are some of the biggest challenges. And um, we've been working on it a long time, but luckily there've been breakthroughs lately with the ways that people have been doing much more creative work in sharing data in powerful ways. I also want to talk to you a bit about a piece you wrote from for the Times last fall. It's titled Stopping Climate Change is Hopeless, Let's Do It. The title is fantastic and the piece is amazing because you talk about how seemingly insurmountable the challenge we face is, but the need to go ahead and embrace it and do it anyway. Can you tell me a bit more about that article and why you wrote it? Yeah, this was a piece that I wrote with Auden Schendler, who's a VP at the Aspen Skiing Company and also just a climate activist, one of the board members of Protect Our Winters. Uh, it's yeah, called Stopping Climate Change is Hopeless, Let's Do It in the New York Times last fall. And it really, this was at the release of the 1.5 report. Many people probably saw the headlines out there. It basically talked about how necessary it was that we limit warming, not just to two degrees, but even to a higher goal, to the goal of 1.5 degrees C. And it also laid out how incredibly difficult that is going to be, that such that most people who think about energy transitions just even think it's impossible. And how do we sit with that, Maria, as human beings? How do you sit with impossibility? And we reminded ourselves and everybody that humans have been through some really intense, horrible things in the past. We, you think of like rebuilding Europe after the plague. Think of some of these world wars, the kinds of challenges that humanity has faced. And yet we come back. And the way that we've done it historically has been by imagining as this work as a practice, not as a kind of uh one-time event, like I'm going to do my thing, I'm going to go to a march, or I'm going to go do that project. But it's just integrating these actions into everyday life, like a spiritual practice, like an exercise practice, like brushing your teeth. That Part of what we do to ensure the long-term future, and frankly, what it is, is to put pressure in some way, collective pressure from society on the biggest industry in the world, which is the coal, oil, and gas industry. And it's probably the biggest opposer of our actions around the world and the biggest challenge we face. So how to make it a practice to be part of organizations of people, groups of people who elevate the voices of the vulnerable in ourselves and say, we can do better, we must do better. That is very beautifully put. Thinking about this work as a practice and keeping in mind the bigger perspectives of what we have achieved in the past and how much we've really overcome. We've overcome so much. And the interesting thing, too, is that we, we don't often get to see the results. Right. We don't get to see those. And we know with climate, sea level rise and many of the impacts of climate change 
it's baked in for the next 20 or 30 years. People don't like to say it, but that's just how this global biogeochemical system works. So we're not expected to see, we can't expect to see things get a lot better. We expect to commit ourselves to what we know is the right way to live. Right, to do it anyway. And just on a little bit of a more positive note, can you tell me what makes you hopeful about the future? Lately, yeah, lately, I think it's been the leadership I've seen from the next generation. Mm-hmm. Um, I've There are these strikes, these school strikes that young people are doing around the world. There's this young woman, Greta Thornburg, who's 15, 16, and speaking with great honesty and directness. There's a lawsuit that some students are bringing out on the fossil fuel companies. Um, there's young leadership in the House of Representatives. Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, you know, 29 and proposing the Green New Deal with Markey. It's uh, exciting times for a new generation of leaders. And it's not their responsibility. We older adults should be handling this. And yet uh, that is something that's given me a lot of hope lately. That's actually been what a lot of people on the podcast have said, too. And I think it's right. It's a very exciting time right now to see such enthusiasm and momentum for action. Unfortunately, though, it seems that it has also resulted in backlash of opposing views and opposing energy to the kind of climate action that we're proposing now, a kind of revival of denialism. How have you approached this and how do you view opportunities for engagement with people or parties that do not necessarily agree with the need to act on climate change. Absolutely, I'm. Uh, we're fortunate in, in our work at Climate Interactive to be invited into more conservative settings with our tools. Mm-hmm. We um, so I've done work with banks and oil companies and big corporations, and talk to people who are very concerned about this issue. And so I think it's tapping, you know, tapping into everyone's general, shared, uh, enlightened self-interest. Everybody cares about the issues of the viability of humanity, even if politically they don't want us to talk about that as much in public. The other thing that is really encouraging to me on this topic is we do a lot of work in other countries. And I want to make sure everyone understands the extent to which the climate denier movement is largely a United States phenomenon Definitely. purchased by the mostly the oil industry via public campaigns that somehow convinced it this is an identity issue, that if you are going to be a Republican, you had to say that climate change is not for real or some version of that thinking. So and, and that they did not buy that in the rest of the world. In the rest of the world, there's a lot of fear and resignation about this issue, but no one's going to stand up and say that it doesn't exist. Uh, So think of this as a problem of a very powerful 5% of the the world's population here in the U.S. It's not a problem uh, for the other 95. Well, Andrew, it is a pleasure speaking to you. I look forward to continue to follow your work and all of the awesome tools coming out of Climate Interactive. Thank you very much for taking the time to do this today. Well, thank you, Maria, and keep up the good work. (laughs) Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening. If you found this conversation valuable, please share it with friends and colleagues, and don't forget to give us a rating wherever you're listening. 
See you next week.